Well, hello, everyone. This is Ben and Cynthia Bailey wrapping up our study on the promised one. So we are in week 10 and covering the sons of Jacob. And I have to say, I think this chapter was probably my favorite chapter of them all to read from, uh, you know, if you're following along with the book, we're using Nancy Guthrie's Seeing Jesus. And what did you think of this chapter? Because the, the minute I read it, I thought, oh, Cynthia is going <laughs> to love this. Really? Because, yes, it was, I think, my favorite chapter of the entire study. And what drew me so much to it was how Nancy Guthrie draws out the family, the drama of the family. And so what she does a brilliant job. This was just a brilliant masterful master metaphor for teaching the concept. And she uses uh, the metaphor she uses is the kind of family Christmas card update letter <laughs> that you could send out. Uh, and it's sends really out, creative. I like it. In essence, takes each of the scenes that you see of J- Jacob's family and the brothers and writes the Christmas update letter uh, from that scene and kind of trace the family trajectory Mm -hmm. through those letters. And we're not going to try and recreate that here (laughs) because I don't think we could do it. But I want to do a sermon series on, an Advent series on those Christmas letters leading up. I think that would be fabulous. So creative and just so good. Yeah, I highly encourage you to, to read it. So if you have the book, The Promised One, it starts on page 263. And another theme that she traces is, it's the title of the teaching chapter, which is They Say... You can't choose your families. So she does a great job of just drawing you into the drama of family development, mm-hmm. family growth. And one of the key lines is, you know, you can't choose your family. Mm-hmm. But God did. <laughs> God does. God chooses his family. And, and the images, the snapshots show you when we're looking at this holy family, there is deep dysfunction and brokenness. I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is a family that had serious issues. Mm-hmm. So let's actually like pretend we're going to be marriage and family counselors and they oh, they come to us for <laughs> marriage counseling and we start trying to unravel all of the issues. By the time you get to Genesis 49, you're going to kind of unravel. All right, what are what are some of the issues we got to unravel? Yeah. So this is a polygamous family marked by manipulation incest, Mm -hmm. prostitution, Mm -hmm. seething jealousy, Mm -hmm. there's murder, there's Mm -hmm. rape, there's idolatry, there's estrangement, like all of the problems a family can possibly have are in this family. I have no idea how we would cancel this family. No big deal. Let's just, we'll just, uh, just a couple sessions. I mean, it sounds like a dumpster fire. (laughs) No, but what's so beautiful though is she gets to, she gets to Jesus so well at the end and then just also draws you back to Revelation, just in Revelation 21 about, behold, I'm making all things new. So just, this just proves that God is in the business of redeeming and restoring all things because he chooses maybe one of the most dysfunctional, unhealthy families to bring about Jesus's line through. It's just astounding. Yeah, it's remarkable. I mean, this was this is a snapshot of Jesus's family. And you can see the beautiful thing. You don't have to wait till Revelation. You can see in Genesis 50 how the holy family gets restored and they're, they're back together. Mm-hmm. And the generational sins of the father, they take decades to heal. 
And so you have the father's indifference and favoritism and the mother's competition and manipulation, and they take decades to heal. But when you come to the end, and so Genesis 50, it, you have two funerals in Genesis 50. It's the, and the last part of 49. It's the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph. Mm-hmm. And when we come to the end, the key question that the brothers are still wrestling with is, has Joseph really forgiven them? Is it possible that they really could be forgiven? Or is it all just kind of this elaborate ruse until he can take vengeance on them? And after Jacob dies, the brothers are afraid because maybe they're thinking Joseph is just being kind to us while our father's alive, and then Mm. um, he's really going to get us. And so this is what we're going to do is just focus in on a couple verses from chapter 50 because 50 is such a powerful chapter on what it means to be forgiven Mm -hmm. and what it means to forgive. So we're going to just look at verses 19 through 21 in chapter 50. And under the context, it's like reconciliation still not complete. So the forgiveness still hasn't happened completely. So you read that for us. Okay. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Derek Kidner, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, um, says about these three verses that each of these sentences is a pinnacle of both the New Testament and Old Testament faith. So here in these three verses, each sentence um, gives you a powerful summary of what real faith is. And so the first sentence tells us um, that we are to leave all of the writings of the wrongs that we've experienced to God. And the second verse tells us that um, we also are to see God's hand in all of man's malice. And then the third sentence tells us we're to respond to the mistreatment with practical affection. And so in this, this little section here, you know, you see these are the marks of somebody's heart that's been changed by grace. Mm-hmm. These are the, the characteristics of someone who has experienced forgiveness and then is now giving it. So let's actually just take each of these lines. So we'll just do verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, okay. and think what each of these verses teach us about the life of faith and experience in the reality of redemption and reconciliation and how they can both empower and illustrate um, what it means to experience and then give forgiveness. And so look first at 19, the first line, mm-hmm. where Joseph says, Do not fear. Am I in the place of God? So that's the first thing. So when you experience forgiveness and then when you give it, you recognize, I am not in the place of God. Mm. Am I in the place of God? And I don't know if you remember from our Corn Creek days. Yes. But I preached a sermon on this called Get Out of God's Chair. Uh-huh. That Sweet Anita Rowlett. She, I love her. she loved that. And would re- it's interesting how certain phrases and sermons just take on a life of their own, and mm-hmm. that became her, um, her phrase that she would just repeat. And every time she would find herself getting um, angry and beginning to hold, start to judge and hold grudges, mm-hmm. and she, I mean, Poor thing, she had had a hard life, mm-hmm. and she would just remind herself, nope, that anger, get out of God's chair. Mm-hmm. He'll judge, not you. And that's one of the powerful things that Joseph demonstrates here. Am I in the place of God? Mm-hmm. And recognizing that his forgiveness came from him. 
So let's think about a couple of ways that we can substitute ourselves and put ourselves in God's place. One of the ways we can see it goes all the way back to Genesis 2. Like You could argue that the core sin was uh, Adam and Eve putting themselves in God's place where they actually get to decide what is right and wrong for them. Has God really said? You know, God said, don't eat of the apple. Has he really said? Who's, who's he to say? I will decide. And it's interesting, it began with a rejection of God's word. So actually, when you sit in judgment as an authority over God's word, you're putting yourself in his place. Or the way this can often come through in academic settings is that people can say, well, you know, the Bible is such, it's primitive, it's narrow, it's wrong on this. Now we know. We know these things. And uh, in essence, it's, it's exalting ourselves to put ourselves in God's place. Mm-hmm. I'm also reminded of Sarah and Hagar. Sarah's trying to take matters into her own hands and then... Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. You see the, the brokenness that comes from that. I think another way that we can try and put ourselves in God's place is when we actually try and do the work that only he can do. Mm-hmm. When we try and be the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my favorite biblical illustrations of this comes from the story of Naaman in Second mm-hmm. Kings. And uh, we used to have to read the story a lot because for a while, this was Maddie May's favorite story from the Jesus she still storybook loves Bible. It. Yeah, she'll even flip through it and like specifically go to that page. <laughs> and so, the background of Naaman—he's a, a great Syrian general. The Syrians have conquered the uh, Israel in the north, and he comes down with leprosy, and they have a captive in his household from Israel. And she says to go to Israel. There's a prophet there talking about Elijah, who could heal him. And so his king sends him with a letter to the king of Israel. It says, here's my beloved, great, valiant warrior, Naaman. I'm sending him to you to be healed of leprosy. And then the king rightly uh, rips his clothes as a sign of mourning and says, who can do this? Am I God? Why is he asking me to do what only God can do? And the reality is every person who works in any type of service environment or position. Every minister, therapist, doctor, teacher uh, has to come to the realization at some point that we can help in some ways, but we have to have kind of that metaphorical tearing of our clothes and recognize there's certain things that only God can do. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the most freeing lines for anybody who's trying to serve and help people is I am not the Christ mm-hmm. from John the Baptist. I am not the Christ. And we have to remember that. Mm-hmm. Have to remember it in parenting, have to remember it in so many areas of life. It also reminds me of one of my favorite lines in one of my favorite worship songs currently of uh, all I have is Christ. And so there's mm-hmm. that third verse of, Oh Lord, I would be yours alone and live. So all might see, but the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use this ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is in you. So it's just that recognition of the soul dependency that we have upon him to accomplish only what he can accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so getting out of God's chair, mm-hmm. acknowledging our dependence, our inadequacies. Our yeah, that's a good tandem. I am not the Christ. All I have is Christ. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's getting out of God's chair. There's certain things that only he can do. And um, you know, another more subtle way that I think we insert ourselves into God's chair is through um, inordinate worry or times of excessive anxiety. You know, if we really examine um, 
our hearts when we're really anxious. He's like, all right, what's fueling this? What's fueling the anxiety? So often it's being fueled by um, the assumption that I know how my life should go and mm-hmm. God's not getting it right. The first time you said that, that was so powerful to me. I'd never seen the amount of pride that is in anxiety. Mm-hmm. You really are saying, I know better how this should go than God does. And it's not working out that way. And so yeah. something's wrong. And That's you gotta, so convicting. You got to get out of his chair. Maybe he knows more about how your life should go than you do. Mm-hmm. And another way we can do it that can be really subtle, but also just sinister is by holding grudges mm-hmm. against people. You know, in one sense, every person who keeps a grudge is taking God's place. And the tragedy is that if you hold on to the evil done to you, you often will become, you can become that evil. Mm -hmm. And so only God has the right, the knowledge, the power to judge without becoming evil himself. And so like if you refuse to forgive and you nurse your anger and you want to seek the power to pay them back, like Joseph could have. Joseph could have done that in this story. And probably would have been justified by all around him for it. Yeah. And But if you do that, you actually become hard and you become cold. And if you nurse self-pity, you become self-absorbed and Mm self-centered. And if you try and beat them at their own game, it'll actually destroy you. Mm -hmm. When you repay evil with evil, you become evil. And this is one of the great themes in the the Lord of the Rings, that uh, if you try and get the ring of power to use it to destroy the Dark Lord, you actually become the Dark Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way to the only way to destroy is you got to throw it in the fire. Mm-hmm. You have to; it has to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know who said it or where I heard this, but it said the fastest way to become like Satan is try to be like God. Try to be God. Mm-hmm. And here we see Joseph. He's he's not going to sit in God's chair. Mm-hmm. You know, I am not God. Am mm-hmm. I in the place of God? Mm-hmm. And it's such a powerful lesson for us. Um, I think it was John Stott who said the essence of sin is sin is putting ourself in God's place, and the essence of salvation is God putting himself in our place. Mm. And so sin and salvation are both all about substitution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sin is you substituting yourself for where God should go, and salvation is God substituting himself for where you should go. Yeah, wow. And so the... The only way we can live in the freedom and power of forgiveness is to get out of God's chair. But the second thing in verse 20, notice it says we also have to take God's view. What it says in verse 20, it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So he takes a much larger view of the situations and circumstances he was in. You know, you can kind of look at Joseph's life as he went down into the pit. And then he was raised up to the mountaintop. Mm -hmm. And here from the mountaintop, he can actually have a better perspective to see what his life was all about. When you're down in the valley and in the pit, you can't see. You You don't have the perspective. You know, it's when you're in the valley, you are tempted to think that um, if life is good, then God must be good. But if life is bad, then where is God? He's not here. He's silent. I can't see him. There's actually a children's book that I saw, and I haven't read it, so it's always a <laughs> bad idea to recommend things you haven't actually read. But I want to get this for our kids for uh, Christmas. It's on our list. And uh, 
So don't tell them, people. If you hear this podcast, don't spoil the Christmas surprise. Keep it a secret. <laughs> but they might not get too excited about books anyway. But it's, uh, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the book, but the, the gist of it is God is like the moon. Okay. God is like the moon. And he's always there, even though sometimes you can't see them. Sometimes the darkness blocks it. Sometimes uh-huh. there's clouds that blocks it, but he's always there. And it's in the valley that often you can't see where he is. Yeah. But here Joseph now in chapter 50 is he's on the mountaintop. And so he um, he can see how God has meant these things for good in his life. And one of the things I love about a well-balanced biblical view of the world is it can keep you from either being too optimistic or too pessimistic. Yeah. So, you know, we all have natural tendencies, like just kind of naturally optimistic where, you know, life is basically beautiful, you're nice to others, people be nice to you, and you kind of think troubles are anomalies. Mm-hmm. Or just kind of a basic pessimistic tendency that you know, life is terrible, it, it stinks, people are going to stab you in the back. Uh, if you have trouble, that's just normal. And what... A biblical, like what revelation can do is keep us from being too, in essence, romantic or too cynical. And keeps can just, you balanced. Keeps you balanced, keeps you healthy. And that's an incredible resource to uh, help you go through life. You know, because what you see here, there's no shallow denial of the wrong. Right. I mean, he says, um, you meant he calls it, it for what it is. It's for, evil. Yeah, it's evil. Yeah. You and not only it was evil. You meant it for evil. Uh-huh. It's not. Oh, it was no big deal. It wasn't really that bad. You were just having a bad day when you knocked me down into the pit and sold me <laughs> and left me for dead. You you didn't really mean it. And I said no. It was evil. Mm-hmm. And and they have to own it. It makes me wonder where he got this perspective from. If it was just. God enlightening him, like as he spoke maybe to him through all of these dreams, or if God surrounded him with other God-fearing, believing men that spoke truth into his life while he was doubting or maybe really struggling. Because, you know, as you were saying, if you have a good biblical worldview, this will keep you more balanced in becoming too optimistic or too pessimistic. But I I wonder also, because, you know, God's so instrumentally uses the body to also come alongside of people in the valley and their struggles mm-hmm. to remind them of truth when they can't on their own mm-hmm. um, remember it. So I, I just wonder if this, because this is tremendous perspective that he has mm-hmm. at this point to be able to forgive and then also attribute um, these things to God. And so I just wonder. Yeah, I mean, you think about the things we need to be changed. We need the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. Um, and to what degree he had the Spirit, I think he he did in some ways. The people, he was alone for much of this, So mm-hmm. what? but then had the Word of Promise. I think had the Word of Promise maybe delivered to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob through the family line. And then the Word of Promise from the dreams that he knew one day mm-hmm. these would come. So in one sense, we have resources that he didn't have because yeah. we have so much of the story and, and yeah. um, so many of the promises and have seen how it's worked out. So. Mm-hmm. So we have incredible resources to be able to have a healthy perspective on these things. But it's hard. Mm-hmm. But So he takes God's view. And then the third thing he does is he lives out God's love. So he gets out of God's chair. He takes God's view or his perspective. Then he lives out his love. And notice what he says in 21. He says, so do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Mm-hmm. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I mean, notice, do not fear. 
what are they afraid of? They're afraid that he's going to remember their sins <laughs> against him and, in essence, wipe them out. Wipe them out. Pay them back for, in some sense, what they deserve. Mm-hmm. Do not fear. I will provide, not only will I not demand from you what's deserved, I'm going to provide for you. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take care of your children, your little ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and here you have this remarkable illustration of God loving his enemies, mm-hmm. the ones you meant this for harm but I'm going to do you good. Mm-hmm. And it echoes, of course, forward to the New Testament. Jesus yeah. says these very same words. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the power of the gospel, the ability to love your enemies. And first, uh, the power for us to experience forgiveness is that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Christ loved God. Uh, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we, we are his enemies, He's loved us. And you can see, I mean, Jesus, the pattern from Joseph's life that we see in Jesus, the, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation of the, the beloved son to bring about the family restoration. That uh, Jesus was the beloved son who also had to go down into the pit of death, and then he was raised back up to life and exalted, as we talked about some of those themes uh, last week. And it was so it's through that power that he's able to love and provide for and tend his enemies. You know, it's interesting. It's one thing to just turn the other cheek to your enemy. It's another thing to provide for the welfare of their children. Yeah. And that's what you see here, uh, Joseph doing here. You know, Joseph is this pattern of um, redemption where he was betrayed mm-hmm. by the ones he loved. He was falsely accused by the ones who didn't love him. And, uh, and we see, you know, see the same realities on the cross. And so if we want to experience and then live out God's love like that, we, we look to the cross. That's the best place we can look to. It's the ultimate example of God bringing good out of evil. And it's the only place that these deep generational sins can be healed. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing here is the healing of deep, uh, decades-long dysfunction. Mm-hmm. But it's being healed at the place of sacrificial forgiveness. And so when we look at the cross, we can see the fulfillment, really, of both sides of this, this story, the Joseph story. We can see the evil being judged in the person of Christ, uh, who was the only completely innocent person who ever lived. Mm-hmm. And we can see all the horrific damage that our sin has caused and the world was laid uh, on him there. But at the cross, the richest fruit from the cross is not necessarily the power that we have to forgive others, but the the forgiveness we receive. And so we have to hear these words from him to us. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. We have to be comforted by those words. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to me how Joseph's brothers had a really hard time accepting and living in the light of his forgiveness. Mm -hmm. You know, why is often forgiveness is very hard to receive? Well, in part, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, in part, there is an awareness that I think all of us have um, when we truly are like quiet into ourselves is, is that we don't deserve it. We're unworthy of forgiveness because of our sin. And so all of us, maybe in different ways or in, and I think to different degrees, are aware that we are unworthy. And it's only Christ who makes us worthy. And so it's, it's such a hard reconciling of those two truths, I think, at times. And sometimes, you know, the way pride can fuel anxiety, pride can also fuel our 
difficulty in receiving forgiveness because mm-hmm. you have to own it. You mm-hmm. have to admit that you need it and yeah. that, um, you know, the cross forces us to confront two realities that our sins really were this bad, that this is what it required to forgive them, the death of the son of son of God himself. But then that we were loved to such a degree that God thought it was worth it, that he was willing to pay that price. Revelation five touches on this, this idea of worthiness, you know, the, the angels proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open up the scrolls and break its seals. And then, I mean, even the, the new song by Andrew Peterson, is he worthy? I mean, it also touches on this and, um, cause we just see in Jacob's family, the sad scene of rampant unworthiness. And, um, but back in or at ahead in revelation five, Um, It says, weep no more. Behold, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He is worthy. And um, so there is only one who is worthy. And it's very obvious who it is. And it's not us. And so there's that just beautiful, uplifting, um, just wonderful reality that there is one who is worthy. And it is through him that we are worthy. And that line illustrates two of the great themes that run through the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Lion of Judah, here in Genesis 49, we get the the promise to Judah that through his tribe is going to come. Uh, The Lion, the Lion and the Scepter will never leave his tribe. So the Lion is coming through Judah which if you read his story, his story is one of a remarkable transformation that she does a great job Mm -hmm. of pulling out in the book. But then the next stage is the lamb, the -hmm. lamb that was slain. And we're going to see who is the lamb of God. And um, our next Bible study series, will go through Nancy Guthrie's series on um, Exodus through Deuteronomy Mm -hmm. called the lamb of God. And so this wraps up our 10 weeks in Genesis. And uh, this has been fun. I've really enjoyed it. It's been so good. So we appreciate you listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. We're going to take a couple weeks off, the holiday weeks off for our men's and women's Bible study Uh and pick back up in January on the Lamb of God as we survey, run those themes through Exodus through Deuteronomy. Yep. We've enjoyed being with you for these 10 weeks and look forward to the next. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Have a great week.